So welcome to the Happy Mindset, where we use the power of language and storytelling to help you find your voice. Today's episode is episode number 38, and today's episode title is Screw the Naysayers. So today I'm joined by Tim Allison. Tim is the founder of Screw the Naysayers Productions. He's the best-selling author of Screw the Naysayers, They Suck Anyways, and he's the host of the Screw the Naysayers podcast series. He knows from personal experience that the support of even one person can drown out the voices of a thousand naysayers. Tim's message is simple. Know the life you want and have the courage to live it. So Tim himself, in his early 30s, he escaped, I would say, a corporate career where he was earning a six-figure sum in favor of moving to a rural part of Canada called Nova Scotia, which is a fishing village. There, he went about setting up a new educational software business for himself, which eventually ended up generating $10 million in revenue. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the self-limiting beliefs you have to overcome in order to do that. We're going to talk about how to listen to your internal voice in the big decisions in your life. And we're generally going to talk about how to go about creating a life that you can be happy with and it aligns with your values. So if you enjoyed today's episode, I would greatly appreciate it if you can leave a rating and a review. And if you enjoyed Happy Mindset in general, head on over to Facebook, search for Happy Mindset there and join the community. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode and thanks again for listening. Okay, so thanks for joining us today, Tim, and the show hey. today. Yeah, my pleasure. Happy to be here. You're welcome. Uh, so I just want to start off with how did the Screw the, nays- Screw the Naysayers come about? Yeah, well, the, you know, the name is, um, the name kind of reflects, Dennis, the way I've sort of lived my life for the last 30, 30 plus years or so. I mean, it's, a, um, it, it's actually, you know, for the title of a book I wrote called Screw the Naysayers, They Suck Anyways, but... It, you know, the purpose around it is, is, is that I've, I'm surrounded by people. I'm 61 years old, man, and, and I'm surrounded by people, and I've watched people, you know, for most of my life staying in jobs where they're not happy. Um, I've learned to recognize quite easily the people that have become wonderful actors or actresses. Like, they'll put on this persona that life's beautiful, it's great, they've got the car and the house and the two cars, and, you know, all of, at least in my generation, this was the kind of stuff everybody was, you know, told was the measure of your, you know, your success. And, and what's sad is that they, they, as they get to a certain age, um, I've been a student of happiness for, you know, most of my life. And, and, um, and there's, uh, there's a wonderful study from a, a lady named Jennifer Acker, who's a psychologist at Stanford, but she'd looked at millions and millions of blog posts and analyzed the language of happiness and found very distinct patterns of the, the, that showed that the way we experience happiness actually changes as we age. You know, like not everybody goes through it at exactly the same speed, and some people get stuck and never really move all the way through. But the reality is that, that if in our early days, you know, we're, especially like I'm, if I were to say late teens and 20s, we're in pursuit. Happiness is getting the things that pe- people have told us we should get because mm-hmm. we really don't know any better. Eh? I mean, we're raised that way. You know, so whatever your parents, and they did it with all of the, the love and affection and intent for you to have a great life and everything else, but whatever your parents and the people that are around you have defined as success, this is typically what we then go out and, and pursue. And even if, we, if we're working in a job, for instance, in, a, you know, in an industry, and we find, oh, this isn't at all what I thought it was going to be. I'm not enjoying it or anything. But then everybody will say, oh, you're doing great, Dennis. I mean, that's, look, you just got to understand this is just the way it is. You, know, you, you just got to work your way up. It's going to get better. And, and, and as, because we're sort of still looking for that external validation, that's great. Problem is when you get, you know, for me, it hit at, before I was 30. 
um, the need for a much greater balance in life. Um, and I don't mean work-life balance, because I mean, what is such a thing? I mean, you know, how do you really, it's not like I can partition, um, you know, things out, but a balance meaning that there's places in my life for other people. I've been pursuing things that I thought I wanted. Well, now I'm married and now I have children or I've got, you know, other friends and I'm doing these things. And, and you start moving towards balance and then, and then you move towards meaning. And, and we're all going to get there. It's just a question of when people get there. I got there at like, like 28, 29. And that's why I, you know, made the career decisions I did. But sooner or later, you wake up and you realize you, if your life doesn't have a, a sense of meaning, if you can't look at what you're doing and feeling that, feel that you've, done something today that was worthwhile and um, other than feed your family, you're going to be unhappy. So this is a really long answer, but the, the, it's, I'm saying screw the naysayers because I don't want to see, I, I see everybody dumping all over millennials and everybody else below. And every time I hear someone my age or a boomer, you know, mouthing off about the entitled millennials and all like that, I want to smack them. It's, you know, it's not that at all. It's just that parents can be so have such an incredible capability of deceiving themselves. So we sit there and we tell our kids, you know, do this, you know, and sometimes our kids listen to us and oftentimes they don't. And that's the way it's been forever. And that there's nothing wrong with that. But what kids always do is they watch and they observe. And if you're coming home from work as a, you know, a, you know, as friends my age, if they've been coming home from work for 40 years and every time they come in the door, they go, and they slam the, you know, their, their briefcase down or their lunch bucket or whatever the hell it is they're carrying. And they go to the fridge and get a beer or pour a double rum and Coke, you know, not because they want to have a beer to relax and enjoy it, but, you know, out of, oh, crap, that day really was no fun type of thing. Mm. Children see that. So now what we've got is a generation that says, we don't think you are very smart about the way you lived your life. And we don't want to live it that way. And I don't, they don't under, I don't think they're all viewing it that way, but I think that that's really what's going on. They're just saying, no, there has to be more to life than, than, mm -hmm. you know, carrying a briefcase or, you know, you know, going into a mine or a factory or, you know, or whatever. Um, so anyway. So like yourself in your own life, cause you got to the top of the corporate ladder in your own career. How did you start shifting more towards a life in alignment with who you are and yeah. that direction? Yeah. Well, that's, that's the thing, man. It was hard. I mean, I, I, you know, the short story, Dennis, in, in my twenties, I, I really truly lucked into a job. I mean, it was, um, you know, being from Ireland, you'll, you'll hopefully know the story of Pygmalion or, or, uh, you know, my fair lady, but you know, the idea that, uh, you know, that, uh, a linguistics teacher could take a, a, a girl out with a heavy Cockney accent and teach her, uh, to be in a room with ladies by speaking, you know, the, the, as we, in Canada, we just say the upper crust language, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it was kind of the same thing with me. Like, you know, uh, the, the job I ended up with, uh, it, in order to get a job in sales with that company, you needed to have like 15 years experience or more with a company like IBM or Xerox. And in those days, those were the really big companies that spent enormous amounts of money on training their salespeople. So even to get an interview, you had to have had that background. I was like 25 years old, 24 years old, something like that. Um, didn't have any of that background. But the boss got frustrated. The, the, you know, the president of the organization got frustrated because all these experienced sales reps wouldn't listen to him. He wanted them to do things differently. And they thought, no, nah, we, we're doing just fine. And they were. They were some of the top paid sales reps in the country. But they weren't doing fine for the company. So he hired this kid off the street. And he told him, he said, I'm going to take a kid off the street. And I'm going to teach him how to sell. And he's going to kick your... And I did. 
you know. So all of a sudden, you know, 26 years old, and you got to appreciate this was the middle 1980s. That's how far back we're going. But I, was, I, I topped $100,000, you know, Canadian dollars, albeit, but, you know, at 26 years of age. By the time I was 27 and a half, I, you know, I, I was managing sales staff in half of our country. It's a big country, Canada. I had a staff in Toronto and Montreal and Ottawa. Um, you know, by the time I was 30, 31, I was, you know, I was in the top 2% of wage earners in this country. Um, and, um, but I was a miserable man. You know, I mean, I, I had, by then I had two children. I'd leave in the morning for work before they were up. I'd get home at night when they were already in bed. And I was traveling probably two weeks out of four staying in hotels and nowhere around them. And um, so the transition, which is what you were really asking about there, the, the really hard, <clears throat> I won't, I, I, I don't want to say it was easy, Dennis, because it, it wasn't. I agonized over it because, you know, there was this voice in my head that just kept saying, nobody quits a job like this. You know, I was the poster child. This is what success is, is, or is supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. And I'm the poster child for it. So, I mean, you don't quit. Um, and not only did I quit, man, but you know, my wife is from this tiny rural fishing village in, in Nova Scotia, Canada. And, you know, for your viewers, that's, that's uh, on the Atlantic coast. We're as close to, to Ireland as well, other than Newfoundland, anybody that's over here in Canada. Um, but there's nothing around here except fishing boats and forests. So like, you know, for a guy like me, I mean, you know, I mean, I've got very small hands. I wasn't cut out for, you know, that kind of work. It also meant I had to start my own business, um, which is what I did. Um, but it was, um, you know, I agonized over it for three years. I, you know, it, 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 I just sat there, you know, almost paralyzed because I mean, I was, I would, I knew I, I had to do something because the job was going to kill me, you know, because of the conflict with the things I wanted in life. Mm-hmm. But I was terrified. I wouldn't tell you, you know, otherwise until finally it just got so bad. I said, no, I said, there's, I'm just going to find a way. So and that's when the naysayers, they, you know, when I just announced that I'd quit, not only did I quit, but I wasn't taking another sales job, but I was going to go start uh, in 1988 I was going to start an educational software company and you know this is going to really date me but there was no internet there were no laptop computers <clears throat> certainly hasn't wasn't any of this kind of communication I mean you know people just looked at me Dennis like I had seven heads you know and, and told me that I was an idiot that I would regret this that the, the comments that hurt the most are the people that said I was a bad parent you know yeah. because I in my mind I had quit because I wanted to be a present parent I wanted to be there for them and to go to their sporting events and all that. But, you know, people were saying to me that I was being irresponsible because I was jeopardizing their financial future. And, you know, I'd regret it and I'd never, ever get another job like that again. And, you know, it's, 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 I I wish I had a formula that would say, this is how I block that negativity out. Um, What I have done over time is understand the sources of it. And that's what I try and educate people on today. What are some of the sources of it? Well, I mean, yeah, great question. So, I mean, it'll, it'll, it depends who it, who it is. The, a lot of the negativity that, uh, uh, that is difficult to deal with is the, is the negativity we get from people that love us. Like, you know, it's a, I ask a show on, on my podcast that the first question I ask all my guests is when you hear the word naysayers, what's the first thought or story that comes into your head? Uh, it's how I start every single one of my episodes. And I would want to, you know, I haven't statistically added it up, but I'm going to bet you at least 90% of the people share a story about someone in their immediate family. And usually it's a parent. Um, so the reason our parents and people that love us, are, you know, come across negative is because they're scared for us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that, it's not that they're, um, you know, that they, they certainly don't want to harm us. They want absolutely the best for us, but because they can't visualize 
uh, them being able to do whatever it is you want to do, they're scared for you. Um, and so the first thing you need to understand with family is that that's just a natural reaction. And, and like if you're blessed if people, you know, get right on board right away, but in most cases there's some resistance and it's fear-based. You're going to get a lot of negativity from people that don't know you that well for the same reason. Um, they're just projecting onto you their, you know, what's happened in their lives. Mm. You know, if you look around, I mean, I always, uh, you know, last I was over in, uh, in, in, in Europe in, in September and, you know, sitting in, in, in metros and stuff like that. I'm looking around at all the people, you know, on the platform and I'm thinking, I really, really wonder of all of the, you know, the people that are on this platform, who's actually going to work right now to do something that they really enjoy. Cause when I look at their faces and where they're going, it didn't look like everybody was all pumped to be, you know, heading, heading off. So when, if you've settled, if you've got to that point in your life, Dennis, where, where you think this is as good as it gets, you know, and a lot of people reach that point. They come home and they feel trapped. The money is too good. They know if they quit, they can't get the same amount of money somewhere else. Or to get it, they would have to put an awful lot more effort into, you know, to get back to it. They tell themselves that, you know, that, that um, you, know, um, you know, that they can't have both a lifestyle and, um, you know, uh, uh, the kind of job, meaningful work and everything that they want that they sort of have to choose. Um, and so they'll project that negativity onto you simply because they can't see it. And then... You know, let's face it, there are some people that are just jerks. I mean, they, you know, they just love seeing people fail. These are the ones that are just waiting for you. First, they tell you you're going to fail, and then they sit back and they wait for you to fail, and then they gloat. And if you don't, those are also the first people that call you up and say, Dennis, my friend, I always knew you could do it. Congrats. You know, I mean, it's like those people I think we can, we've learned to ignore. Mm -hmm. The other two, uh, you know, you need to have conscious awareness of, you know, of what, and the, the big problem is, is that it's, is that the, the greatest naysayer of all is the one that's in our own mind. Mm -hmm. um, and it gets heavily influenced by the external um, noises that are out there. So like if three people, if you have an idea, you know, for, or you come up and said, I want to get some superstar, uh, you know, onto your show, and you've got an idea to, to get that person to come in. But if the first three people that you mentioned it to say, Dennis, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That'll never happen. Even if their opinions are completely ill-informed and they know nothing about your strategy or your idea, and for all they know, your best friend is friends with that person. They don't know anything. But they, they project that negativity on you. It's, it's really funny because, like, it's not a question of, like, one plus one plus one equals three. It's sort of like all of a sudden it feels like the whole world thinks I'm stupid. Mm -hmm. The whole world thinks I can't do it. And so, you know, it's, you just really, you know, you have to be almost surgical in, in removing, you know, I don't know what language is permissible on this show, but I mean, I don't think this is vulgar, but I mean, uh, it's a little edgy, but I refer to naysayers as a bunch of uninformed dickheads. Mm -hmm. Like, why do we listen to people who really don't know what they're talking about? What do you think you they know? do? What do you think it's so hard to ignore them when we know for a fact that they don't know what they're talking about? Yeah, because it's just the way we've all been raised. I mean, we, we, we're, um, this is going to create some, you know, some controversy, but I mean, um, when we're children, we've got an automatic, we're all born with an automatic ability in our mind to correct. If something doesn't feel right, or even if we get angry and, you know, something's bad, but if then mom comes around and offers us an ice cream or something like that, it instantly, eh? it's, we don't stay where we were, you know, and, and, but what happens is that, you know, we get so anchored in negativity as we're growing up and then we get sent to compliance-based education systems where we're told to sit down, behave, shut up, and wait for instructions. Mm 
Um, if you want to talk about empowering people with the worst set of skills, if you wanted to dream up what are the worst skills that we give people to prepare them, you know, for what's going to go happen once they're out of school, is that first of all, let's tell them to wait for instructions so they never know how to do anything themselves. And if things aren't working out the way we told them they would be, all of a sudden we're not there. Now, oh, yeah, I know we promised you the job. We told you all you had to do was go to school, get an education, maybe go to, you know, college or whatever, and a great job would be waiting. And then you come out and the great job isn't there. Um, that person who promised you that it was going to be there isn't there anymore, you know, and you're sitting back waiting, you know, how do I, um, the compliance side of things, like if, if, we, if we fail, if we try something, um, when was the last time you heard somebody say, I think I'm going to try a subject at school that is really hard for me, um, but I just want to try it because I might be interested in it. And at least in North America, everybody's going to say, are you crazy? That's going to mess up your you know, our language over here, your GPA, you might not be able to get into, you know, in the college or university, you know, you focus on the things where you can, you know, well, I like the idea of focusing on my stresses, but it tells me that if I want to try something different that I'm uncertain about, I shouldn't do it. Mm. And, 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 and so we're taught from the earliest days that failure is a really bad thing. And we don't like what happens when we fail. Like if we come home from school with a poor report card from school, poor grades or whatever, People don't pat us on the back and say, Dennis, great job. Congratulations on, you know, on, on barely passing that course or on failing that course, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so what do we, what do, we do is, is, is we don't like the feeling we get when, when, when people respond to us that way. So we, we go into risk aversion. Well, I, I, don't, I won't get that feeling if I just minimize doing things that might cause me to, to fail. Because failing is, it's not, you know, we're, we're starting to believe that failure is bad. So you, you do that for till you're 18 or something or 22, depending on, you know, what education, you know, process you go through. Now you're trying to think about doing something you've never done before, taking a risk, mm -hmm. you know, something you think that looks like fun. I think I, you know, maybe I would really like doing that. Every bone in our body is saying, uh, you know, be careful because if, if it doesn't work out the way you expect it to, bad things are going to happen. Mm -hmm. And it, it's really, and so the controversy is this, I think we train our minds out of the ability to reset. Like it's like, a, I think we just convince it that, that it can't reset. And I believe, I'll go as far as to say, I think that, and I'm, and I'm getting um, a lot of this is uh, something about one of my mentors is Ron Malhotra talks about, but we've got, at least in, in our parts of the world, Dennis, we've got record levels of anxiety and, you know, people that are at young ages, People that are on medication that might be on medication for 40 or 50 years if they don't, you know, if something doesn't change, um, being sold a what line of bull that it's all about chemical imbalances and, and stuff like that. And what do you think needs to change but, there? Is it our understanding that the mind can reset when we go through failures? And Absolutely. We've got to stop saying, look, I, I want to be crystal clear. Anybody who's, you know, is in a bad place and isn't feeling good needs to, you know, always have a safe place to go tell their friends and family that, hey, something's not right. Mm -hmm. That is so critically important. But what we have to do is stop, stop by saying, it's not your fault. Well, that's great. But this, 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 this stuff out there, there's a lot of research out there about, you know, the so-called chemical imbalances and stuff like that. And I'm not saying, you know, like there are severe cases. Like I'm not talking about somebody with schizophrenia or something. You know, this, these are very serious, you know, you know, mental illnesses. I'm not a doctor. Mm -hmm. But all these people are just, well, I'm anxious. I'm depressed. I'm discouraged all the time and stuff like that. Teach these people how to reset their mind. Help them understand why they've got to, even the story that I just related, ask them about a time in their childhood, 
and what they were like and whether they weren't able to recover. Like if they, even if they had a massive fight, yeah. you know, a, you know, as a five-year-old with their parents and had a temper tantrum for an hour, did they, did they, did they remember it today? And the answer is we don't like, you know, and, and they didn't remember it the next day or that evening or whatever. So let's first remind people that we've got way more power up here than, than we think. And then let's work, you know, you might need to work with somebody that can help you, you know, start to look at things objectively. Um, but, you know, things are, ra- in my experience, things are rarely anywhere close to as bad as people convince themselves they are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unless you're dealing with, you know, like with the day my wife found out she had ovarian cancer, that was a really bad day. <laughs> you know, if thankfully, you know, had a successful uh, outcome there. But there are things like that. But, you know, when we get all stressed out about work or, you know, somebody not liking us or, you know, getting caught up in politics and, you know, which, you know, and all this kind of stuff, things that we're not really having any kind of direct control on. Mm-hmm. That's just us. That's us choosing to dwell on all that negativity instead of going out and going for a walk in nature, for example. There's research, there's absolute research out there that says if you're, you know, if you're feeling stressed, if you get out into nature, wherever you live, even in a city, if you go find a green space and go for a walk, there's a, a study that was done. They took two groups of people that were in fairly high stressed um, you know, jobs, and they were literally monitoring, you know, with the sensors, all the ac- brain activity and all this kind of stuff. And they, they put, split them in two groups, and they both got to go walk for an hour. The one group went and walked around the you know, city blocks with cars honking and, you know, and all this kind of stuff and came back, and there was basically no change. They'd taken an hour away from what they'd been doing, but they'd walked around and came back. And the other group went to a park and just walked well with the trees and the green grass, and at the same time came back, and it was, like, dramatically different, eh? Yeah. We're not, we're not saying to people here, develop your coping mechanism. You know, f- don't let it get to the point where, you know, where, where it's so bad, you know, start, start asking, what could I do to, to reset it? Or who could help me? Or who can I talk to? I mean, I don't, I, I'm not suggesting it's easy. I'm not making light of it. And I'm, you know, you know, there's a good chance that uh, some of your listeners will you'll send me, you know, messages, you know, about this. All I'm, you know, suggesting for sure is that we need to be talking about this. We can't just keep saying that let's right now talking about mental health in in Canada anyway, means just acknowledging that exists everywhere and showing empathy. And I I almost think it feels like we're expected to show sympathy. People that are sick don't need sympathy. doesn't matter what we're sick from. We don't need sympathy. That won't help us. Mm. You know, let's, why don't we figure out how we could actually help them for starters, put the prescription pads away, stop giving 25 year old pills that, you know, simulate what alcohol you know, the experience. some of those pills do exactly to us what, uh, what alcohol does to our, you know, our mind in terms of the short-term, you know, effects. So what's the difference? You might as well tell them to go to the bar, you know, and, uh, you know, do this kind of stuff. So, so like, um, just going back to when you moved to Nova Scotia with the educational software company, was there a reason why you chose education? Yeah. The company that I had worked for was, was, um, was at its, uh, at the forefront of introducing uh, some of the earliest um, um, computer-based training, training programs in, you know, in the world. So I had, from a sales perspective, I had no technical experience. I couldn't make the stuff. Mm-hmm. But from a sales perspective, I really understood the, and saw the potential for what computers were going to be able to do um, as a learning aid way before they were really you know, um, being used in any kind of common, um, you know, common way. So, I mean... I, 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 the, the thing that took the big stretch was the belief that a guy that didn't know anything about technology 
could find people to collaborate with, you know, you know, around the world that did know about technology <laughs> so that we could do some interesting things. And, and that's literally how I, you know, I grew the company. I mean, I just basically said, Hey, I, I put myself out there and said, I know this market really well. And I act, and I know how to sell into this market really well. And I know what the market needs. Now let's, you know, I went on a search to try and find it. Um, and eventually found a, you know, a couple of companies that had something that was close um, and we just did some, you know, some collaboration and, and, and made some changes. And, you know, that, um, um, it took me about three years, Dennis, I'd say for the first three years, I was treading water. I mean, you know, I was, mm-hmm. and I'm partly responsible for that because I told everybody when I first got there that my goal in life was to make enough money to put food on the table and keep a roof over my head. It's exactly what I did. Um, oh, and that's because I screwed it. You break through that belief because that was what was yeah, happening. In your a, life. A, a, a mentor. That's exactly, I was stuck. I think I would have stayed there because mm-hmm. I had bought into the, you see, I'd walked away from all those naysayers, but I had bought into the crap that, that I, I really felt, I grieved. I felt like I'd sacrificed my entire career in order to, you know, live in this community where I'm still at, by the way, and, and be with my, my family. Um, and I was stuck in that mode. So I was making enough money to stay here, but no more. I met a, it's a crazy world because, you know, Roy's uh, rest in peace, uh, gone for a couple of years now but um i met this guy he was like 30 years 25 30 years older than me we you know we were at a, a, a sales conference in in california um in you know in san diego and and we were sitting there you know having some drinks the one night and just started talking to him got to know him and yeah i was giving him some of my background and you know he just sort of looked at me and he said well why the hell aren't you you know growing this business you got across canada like why, why are you just staying down at one end of the country. I mean, I said, Roy, nobody will take me seriously. I'm coming. They'll, they'll think I'm showing up in rubber boots and a fishing hat or something like that. If I go to Toronto where I used to be. And, um, you know, he looked at me and it's like, again, you know, most listeners won't be able to relate to this, but back in those days when you wanted to pay a credit card bill, you actually had to mail a check, you know, you couldn't go online to pay them. Eh? So, so, um, he says, Tim, he says, I mail a check to, to pay my American express bill every month. And it goes to some little, place in North Dakota or South Dakota. He said, it's in the middle of nowhere. He says, I don't know where it's going and I don't care. He says, why do you think your customers are really going to care, you know, where you're living? And I, I don't know. He, he had such firm belief and he, you know, he just became a great mentor and, and um, he started throwing ideas at me and suggestions and every, and then I started to change my mindset. And instead of saying, well, I can't do that. I'd, I'd ask, you know, what would have to happen for me to be able to do that? And I found when I started looking at it that way, like, what do I have to do? It started to become action oriented. So mm-hmm. what would have to, what do I have to do in order to, you know, for this to be, you know, possible. And, you know, ideas start coming into your head. And then if you've got someone like, like I did in Roy, I'd say, Roy, what do you think? You know, I mean, maybe I could set up a, a, a dealer channel from coast to coast of, you know, of, of, you know, of sales agents. And he'd say things like, that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and I know it sounds crazy. But, it, you know, you of all people, I think, are going to get it. But, you know, the, 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 the whole mindset thing, it, that's what it was. And, I, uh, you know, from that day on, I mean, I got going and the company boomed. I ended up selling over $10 million worth of software from, you know, the, this little fishing village. And, and um, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not wealthy, you know, in, in that sense. But I lived a, I've lived a way above average, you know, income. I mean, if, you know, I mean, I've had great income. I've controlled my own schedule. I... Um, you know, I, I, I bear, I never missed one of my son from Canada. So my son plays hockey, uh, mm-hmm. or played hockey growing up 13 years of every weekend at the hockey rink from like September or maybe October till April, never missed a game because mm-hmm. I was the boss. 
And you were clear in your values at this stage too, were you? Did you at any stage become conscious about the decision of like what are your values and whether they align with where you are in life? So there, you know, the, the fair thing to say is I was conscious of the family part of the values being a present parent. Um, was driving everything I was doing at the, you know, at the, at the start there. Before I actually, I, I think I really firmly defined my, you know, my values when I was about 35, something like that. I mean, I, I was working again with a business coach. I mean, I just, I, I don't want the things to sound self-serving, but I, I, I've learned so much from, from, from mentors and from working, you know, with other people. And I can still remember, um, you know, Bob Crockett took me through an exercise. He was my coach at the time. And he just, it's a simple one, you know, just take out a piece of paper or your iPhone, whatever you want to do, but a piece of paper is good visually because you can draw a line down, you know, the, you know, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, write the words I value at the top of the page and then just fill it in mm -hmm. and, and then, you know, start narrowing it down. So I mean, for me, family, friends, health, respect, integrity, um, the environment, and, and recently I've added legacy. Um, and those are, those are the, uh, I've learned to use it, you know, Dennis, to, 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 first thing I did was I used it to identify any sources of unhappiness in my life and get rid of them. Because <laughs> if, if you're unhappy, then there has to be something going on in your life that's in conflict with one of your core values. It's the only thing that, that has the power to actually make us un, you know, unhappy. How did you manage to do that? Was it like you wrote down what you were doing and you wrote down your values and compared? Is that how you found that out? How, to, to determine my values or? Or to determine whether you were doing stuff that was making you unhappy. Oh, well, where was it? Yeah, well, I actually, I think it's pretty easy. I mean, if you clearly understand, you say, okay, I, if I've got in those days, those six values, family, friends, health, respect, integrity, or the environment. So there's either something going on in my life that conflicts with one of those values, or there's something um, missing. So if I go back to like, those values, by the way, they were always there. I just, you know, because I believe they're, you know, they're inside us. Like, it just takes us a while to figure them out. So if you take me back to my days when I was a sales rep, it's easy for me to look and say why I wasn't happy. Well, family was, 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 was very important to me. I was I'm not a present parent. I would become a, a poor husband. I was away. I wasn't having enough time with family. There's a, you know, there's a big problem. Um, 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 health. Um, you know, is, is important to me. I was under so much stress that it had caused, got me to the point where I was badly abusing alcohol. Um, I was on the road all the time. I was using the corporate credit card for, you know, extravagant meals and all kinds of things that are, you know, bad for you. And you just, but it doesn't matter if you just go down your list. I have a, a young woman that I was uh, mentored here locally um, and, and she's a dancer. Like she danced her, growing up, she was just the, the, the girl in our community. We're, our community is very similar in Ireland. It's an Acadian French community. There's a lot of step dancing and, and we call it jig, but you know, very similar stuff. And dance culture is huge. So this girl had been among the best. Eh? Um, so she, you know, finishes and everybody says, well, you know, Amber, you've got to go off to the big city to teach dance because you're, you know, you're a dancer and you, you love dance. So she goes off to Toronto, which is our big city. And she realizes fairly quickly that, standing in front of a bunch of five-year-olds teaching them where to put their feet isn't the same thing as being on the stage, you know, doing her performance art and, you know, and all of this kind of stuff. And so she stayed with it for a while, came home, was really miserable, you know, just said, I don't know what to do. I'm lost. I did what, and uh, so I saw her, you know, at, at this little lo local cafe and I, and I said, well, what are you doing? She said, oh, I'm a social media consultant. I said, why are you a social media consultant? She said, well, you know, I have to make money and, you know, I, I'm in Toronto. I learned about, you know, Facebook and, you know, and she wasn't really doing anything exceptional compared to anybody else that's out there in it. But 
I said, are you enjoying that? Well, not really. I said, well, Amber, I mean, why aren't you trying to figure out, you know, what it is that's making you unhappy? Just coming back to our little community, um, you know, isn't going to, you know, magically, you know, you know, fix it. You may have missed your family and everything, but you don't have a job that's meaningful to you. And um, we started talking about her dancing and everything. And I, I, somewhere in this conversation, I had that one conversation with her dentist. And like about three weeks later, I'm driving through the little community that's close to us. It's the closest thing to a, uh, a town that's got like 8,000 people in it or something. And I see her. She's, she's rented a, a suite uh, above a retail store, above a men's clothing store. And she's in there cleaning the whole thing up to make a dance studio out of it. But, but not to teach little, you know, little, little children or whatever, but to be able to put on performances to do performance art herself. And now she's attracted um, older dancers and even adults who are interested. She's teaching, um, you know, everything from, from uh, um, you know, from um, impressionist dancing to pole dancing to burlesque, I mean, whatever, and having the time of her life, you know, and you see her and she's just smiling from, you know, from year to year. She was never gonna be happy. I rambled on the story, because she was never ever gonna be happy if she hadn't found a way to incorporate what she wanted to do into her life. It either had to be in her job or, but, you know, or somewhere, but, um, and she was never going to be happy working at a job whose sole purpose was to, you know, feed herself. Mm-hmm. We can't, it's just not going to happen. Like I, there are places in the world where if you're just happy to make enough money to feed yourself, but we all grew up, no matter how hard the times might have felt at times, we all grew up with, for the most part, where we have a reasonable expectation that we're going to be warm and there'll be some food to eat. You know, so, so if we had choices about making our money, we've got to make choices, you know, and, and when we look at the jobs, we got to say, another thing for me is like, you know, I, um, the respect value, I think, I, you know, and integrity, um, it makes it, it contributed to the fact that it made me not a great employee. Like, you know, I mean, I, I, I hold myself to very high standards. And if, and if I would, would be seeing people working for, you know, or that, you know, that were my superiors or that were, you know, writing my checks or whatever, doing things that, you know, didn't um, sit right or that I thought maybe weren't all that ethical. And I'm telling you, if you were in business in the 1980s, you saw a lot of that. You saw a lot of very inappropriate treatment of, of women by, you know, by, by male leaders. And, and I mean, really inappropriate stuff that will get in jail today was, you know, absolutely, you know, routine. You saw people... Um, you know, doing things financially that were as close to the line as, as, as you could possibly get it, perhaps we're often over the line. Those kind of environments made me, you know, not uncomfortable because I was afraid, but I just didn't, you know, it just mm-hmm. didn't feel right. You know? And, um, you know, if you don't respect your employer, you know, then that's another thing why we, you know, what, what, what we've really got to get people thinking about. The la- latest Gallup survey showed, this is crazy, it showed 87% of employees worldwide are dis- disengaged from their work. 70% are disengaged and 17% are actively disengaged. That means they're deliberately trying to sabotage their employer. Like they go to work deliberately trying to do something that's going to harm the person that's raising We've got, even if the number isn't that high, but I mean, they keep getting these results over and over and over again. We got all these people working at stuff that they don't enjoy. Well, do you think it's Isn't the main it? belief, main belief under that is that is it that we don't believe we can create money from something meaningful? No, absolutely, yeah. or that we enjoy. Absolutely, yeah. we have bought into this idea that that first of all, making money is it results from trading our time for money. That's the thing that every employer in the world wants you to believe. Mm-hmm. That you know the way you make money is an hourly wage or however you want to calculate it. 
Um, and we also have been trained to believe because we look at our parents and their parents and the, you know, and, and they were making sacrifices in their mind to try and make it better for us. Every one of those generations said, I'm doing this because I want my children to have it better than, you know, than we did. And that actually has worked. It isn't working anymore. Like, you know, certainly I feel the, the lifestyle that I had at a boomer compared to what people are, you know, are dealing with now and at stages of life and everything. I, it's, it's not, um, what do you think has changed? Um, well, I mean, everything uh, in, in terms of income. I mean, you know, the, we're at a time when, when real income is just not increasing. You know, in other words, if you look at inflation and everything else, like every generation so far, we, if we're progressing and we're getting, adding more technology and stuff, people have made more money. The money that, you know, my daughter um, is making, now she's an entrepreneur now herself, but I mean, was making, say, in her mid-20s compared to what I was making in her mid-20s, not even close. She had a master's degree. She very well act, uh, has a master's degree. Mm -hmm. um, the, the money side of things, and, but the belief system is the other problem. Like we've, we've instilled in everybody this belief that we've got to work for somebody else. And I'm not telling everybody to go quit their jobs, but I'm uh, like every day I hear a story about somebody that got to like 50 years of age, 55 years of age, their kids are at university maybe still or college. They've still got a lot of bills to pay. And guess what? You're redundant. You know, thanks for the 25, 30 years, even if it wasn't with the same company, you know, even if you've moved around or whatever. Um, every day, uh, you know, I, 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 I hear stories of, you know, people saying that they, they hate their job, you know, that they're just going to work, um, you know, to, you know, in order to, um, you know, um, to pay the bills. And, and nobody wants to accept that as of, you know, 2020, in the United States anyway, 50% of the jobs are in the gig economy. 50% of the work out there is available to anybody who wants to do it. And we can do it anywhere. Like I'm in the middle of nowhere, Dennis. I'm looking out my window. All I see is forest and mm -hmm. trees. I can't, there's no power lines. There's nothing. And it's not that they're underground. They're just not there. <laughs> like, you know, we can do uh, business anywhere. There's never been an, a, a better opportunity for young people to participate or anybody, my age too, for anybody to participate, to start a business. Um, and I think when I hear people talking about the stability of a regular paycheck, I laugh. There's no such thing as the stability of a life. All I can do is suck you into something where you think it's going to be there. And when you need it the most, it's probably not going to be there. And the longer you take to figure out how to make the money yourself, the harder life gets. That's true. Can you talk about, uh, you said in the book as well, you said the golden handcuffs aren't real. So the idea that the longer you, stuck, you stay stuck in a corporate job and the more you get paid, the more you're stuck. But you said that, that isn't real. Can you just expand a bit on that for people? Yeah, well, because it feels real as hell. Mm -hmm. You know, like, so there I was with all that income and I was telling myself, well, I, ha I have to have that income. You know, I mean, I wasn't looking and saying, well, do I really, you know, when I grew up, did I dream of wearing tailor-made suits? That I, I was having my shirts tailor-made and monogrammed with my initials on the front. And I was wearing gold cufflinks, you know, and mm. like solid gold cufflinks and stuff like that. I never really asked for any of that stuff. That was just a uniform that, you know, as I progressed up the, the line that was required. And even when you get into, you know, uh, jobs with very good pensions and stuff like that, we always have choice. We always have choice. The problem is, is that that when people use words like I have no choice, that's when they're talking about golden handcuffs of some sort. There's something that's holding, whether it's, you know, uh, money that's tied up in an investment plan or, you, you, you know, you have bills to pay, you got children to feed. These are all real. I'm not saying those responsibilities aren't there. But anytime you say I don't have a choice, you're lying to yourself. 
everyone has a choice every single day. It's just that you may not like the choice, you know, that, you know, to get what you want. If, if that the happiness may require you to, to, um, you know, take a cut in pay for, you know, for, for a period of time. Um, maybe you can't afford to just quit, but a, a good, uh, one of the guests that was on my show is named Ali Mirza, great guy, very successful social entrepreneur, but he was working in engineering and, you know, and, and, and getting really well paid, but wanted to make a change. Didn't feel, and he knew he wanted to go into, you know, into the area of social media marketing and all that kind of stuff, but he didn't feel he knew enough about marketing. So he took about a 40% pay cut to take an entry-level job for somebody else in marketing so he could learn about marketing. And then he started his own business. Now he's just, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's making 10 times more money than he ever had before. He's, he's uh, empowered. He's enjoying life. I mean, there are ways. It's just if we don't want it bad enough. And, and so, but we get, you know, it's just easy to fall into victim mode. I, you know, I have no choice. We always have a choice. Yeah, you talk about the two different roles we can play, the great pretender or the victim in your book. Can you expand yeah. a little bit on that? Yeah. Well, it's really true. Eh? If you, you know, if, if you look around us, like what, what happens is that is um, um, we really, we've been trained and we talked about it earlier, but we don't like it when people say we're, you know, we're, we're not being successful or that we failed or whatever. Um, and the last thing anybody wants to do when it comes to their life is admit that they might not be happy. It's really tough to say, well, because then you blame yourself. I made all these decisions. I'm responsible for my life. Nobody else, you know, like that's just the way it is. It's me. I made the decisions. Eh? So what, the first thing we do is we just pretend, you know, the first reaction is, well, I'll just pretend everything's great, even when it's not. And that's where you're going to, you know, that's happening. You go for a walk wherever you are today. You're going to run in. If you talk to 10 people, I guarantee you five of them or some, I'm, you know, I'm not a mathematician. There's a big number that are going to be telling, oh, it's great. And it's not. I mean, but we're just, we just, we're trained, eh? So, so you got all these great pretenders. When that gets hard, like for example, in my sales job, it got to the point, I couldn't pretend it was great anymore. I mean, it just, it was going to, it, it, the weight gets too great. But the next thing you, you do is you, you just fall into the victim mode. And you, we all know people that are like that. And they could be my age. Some of them stay in that mode their entire life. And what a, what a, what an eternal, you know, an extraordinary waste of a life. And that's just saying, well, it's not my fault. You know, I, I had my job sucks, but it's not my fault. Um, you know, I'm not happy, but it's not my fault. I don't have good relationships, but it's not my fault. My wife left me, but it's not my fault. I mean, you know, that is a, is dangerous, dangerous, uh, you know, territory. I mean, we all are humans. We're all going to feel, um, it's sometimes, you know, a little sorry for ourselves, but, but, um, it's, it's, you know, it's such, da such dangerous territory to be in because nobody's going to come along and, you know, and, and, and pick you up and fix you. You know, you have to get up yourself and, and, um, but we hide and we act. Mm. So what do you think could be done with education to help us move forward and adapt better to the real world today? Well, that's a, that's a massive question. question. I mean, I, I think, I think obviously we've, you know, we, we've got to acknowledge that the education system that we have right now is, you know, was essentially designed to, to provide factory workers. I mean, to, to have people who were, were to be trained to show up, be punctual on time, obedient, do repetitive tasks, even if they find them boring. That's what, you know, what, you know that's the origins of our school systems in Ireland and Canada, you know, Europe and, and the United States and most of the, you know, the industrialized world. Um, look, um, I'm not, uh, education is important, but we have to understand that, that information isn't the commodity anymore. Like teaching our, you know, measuring our kids uh, and preparing our kids for the future by teaching them how to memorize facts is stupid because every single one of them over the age of six can pick up their little phone 
-hmm. and find all the information they want in in so what do we need to teach them how to do they we, they we can teach them how to find the stuff they can do that themselves how about we start teaching them about discernment like because there's so much you know i've read i can't remember the exact stat dennis but it's something like 80 percent of the content on the internet has been created in the last five years there's so much information out there and we know that a lot of it is not true so we should need to be teaching our children from the earliest days how to, you know, discern and, you know, does this feel right? Um, how to decide what information, how to, to take control of our own mind, to, to, to how to decide, am I going to take that on board? Like if somebody's talking to me about something and they're, you know, let's say they're calling somebody a name or they're being, you know, is that something that sits right with me? And if it doesn't, don't take that on board, you know, teaching them those kind of skills, you know, to, to, we need to teach them that they have the power to reset their mind. Mm -hmm. So consciously explain to them how they just did that. You know how you were upset an hour ago and now you're not? I just want you to remember that you actually have, you know, you and I both know, and most any, anybody that studied this, you know, the brain will say, you know, what we believe has a, a you know, almost uh, unmeasurable impact mm -hmm. on, you know, on what we're, what we're able to achieve. So we've got, we've got to teach them um, to learn collaboratively. There's an amazing program in New Zealand. Uh, um, uh, the company's called MindLab, but it's a private sector company that's partnered with the, um, um, with the New Zealand government. The, uh, Rich Rowley, was, who works there, was on my, sh my show, uh, at Guest 8, uh, way back then. But it's amazing, Dennis, because what they do is they go around and they started uh, creating these little mini labs. So they, the, the last year, I think in 2018, something like 40,000 elementary students in New Zealand went into one of these, you know, I'm going to call them a mobile lab. It's not like a bus or whatever. They just get a room. And the kids get all excited because they're, oh, I'm going to go work on robotics today. So they're all excited because they're going to be learning about new stuff and everything. Um, and it tells you something because they're excited because they're going to actually get to do something instead of just passively sitting and listening. But from a, a pedagogical standpoint, from a learning standpoint, they don't care about what they're learning about robotics. They're teaching them to learn collaboratively to solve problems. So they give them problems to do with the stuff, like maybe assemble a robot with the instructions. And they're in groups. And let's say your group, uh, let's say we're in the same group together. And I um, am reading, I'm a good reader and I'm reading the instructions, but I just can't quite you know, you know, figure it out because I'm not good at visualizing how to take those words off the page and do something. You're an auditory learner. You can't, that, that piece of paper is just meaningless to you. You just can't understand it. Now, you could read it from now until tomorrow and not understand it. So you get stuck and, and what, you know, somebody in our group puts their hand up and the teacher comes over and, and they call them facilitators, actually not teachers, but the facilitator won't answer the question. But what he or she will do is they'll look around the room and they might say, let's say he turns to you, Dennis, and he says, Dennis, I see that group over there has figured out what you were trying to do. Why don't you go ask them what they did? And maybe they, now you're a really good auditory learner. So you get up and everybody up until that point thinks you're the dumbest person in the group because you haven't contributed anything. You walk over with your group and somebody over there says, oh, it's easy. It just explains it in words verbally. Nobody else gets it. You turn around, walk back to the table and you, and you do it and it's done, eh? The lessons that they learn about, first of all, collaborating, going and talking to other people, because that's real life. When we're at work and we're stuck, we don't sit there all day trying to figure it out ourselves. Mm -hmm. But the other thing it teaches us is it's okay to not be great at something, you know? So, so you didn't read it well. I, I couldn't understand what he was saying. It doesn't make you, me smarter than you or vice versa. And we have got to, um, you know, we've got to incorporate that kind of learning at the earliest ages, focusing on solving problems, focusing on using information, focusing on, on discerning information, focusing on, 
on, on um, you know, I, we've taken all of the discussion of values out of our schools. Like, you know, I mean, and, and I'm, not, I'm not talking about it from a religious standpoint. I don't go that route and, and all. But I mean, we've taken all the discussion out about what's right and what's wrong. We don't talk to our kids about, you know, you know what, it's important to have an attitude of service. That I can tell you right now at 61, and I'm blessed with my podcast, man, I've been really, you know, getting some amazing guests. Um, and I can tell you that the, you know, the, the more, quote, successful, unquote, you know, people I get on the show, and by successful, I mean, people have achieved really big things, but also very humble and enjoying it. And they're, you can tell they're happy. They, every single one of them say that, they, you know, that the focus of their life is service. You know, that, 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 and we try and tell people it's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to help your neighbor. It is, but it's good for you to help your neighbor because if you're one of these people that's always helping other people, guess what? People help you like crazy and wonderfully good things happen, you know, for, you know, for you. We don't talk about any of that kind of stuff, you know? Um, and I think we just have to put those kind of, it's not about what deity you believe in or don't believe in or any of those kinds of things, but about being good human beings and about having social responsibility for, you know, for, for everybody, um, about not judging people, and, and create learning experiences like the one I just described, where the person that is, gonna get, is, gonna, is, that is being criticized a lot all of a sudden looks like the star. And people say, hey, you know, because th that's our life, isn't it? When we get out in the real world, we, you know, we, we, we're not pigeonholed into having to have one particular skill set. And at school, it's all about memorization, and rote repetition of, of uh, process. No, that's actually really good answer, yeah. It's, it's the, the difference between active learning and passive learning. Like the, the lessons you were mentioning there, I learned those lessons in my 20s. I wasn't that aware of it all the way through even university. It was, it was all passive. Exactly. Stuff, so. Exactly. University in Canada for me was just a larger version of what I had, and, and maybe even more so. I was just a, one of a big group of people, bigger group of people listening to somebody on a stage talk. Mm. instead of in a classroom i mean and it was still largely you know uh, it's not active at all i had a teacher i was on a, a show uh, there's a lovely lady in quebec canada has a show called uh, in a teacher's shoes and she interviewed me yesterday but she's using the word passion-based learning and what she's trying to do like she's actually teaching esl like english as a second language to new immigrants to our country but they're still in school age so like 15 16 so they've got to get their you know their language skills up and for them it's english and uh but she really, really tries to figure out uh, what their interests are, what they're passionate about, and then uses that to teach them the language. You know, I mean, doesn't it seem so bloody obvious that instead of, oh, we got this, this textbook, there's another thing. We're still making students at universities and colleges buy textbooks. I mean, $4,000 4 to $5,000 an average student in North America is going to spend on textbooks in four years. And they'll change them every year, so you can't even buy the used ones, you know, because they'll say, and they'll only change 10 words, but they'll freak you out and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. What? This is crazy. Like, why are people using and killing trees to make these things? It's, there's so much vested interest in our education system that's driven around money. And, and um, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, at times I feel like the, the darn thing just needs to be blown up. And I understand there's a, there's a really big movement going towards homeschooling, and I get it. I really do. I mean, I would. I didn't do it. I don't know whether I would have had the courage to do it, but I can see why people are doing it because um, they're just not getting it. You know, think, where they should be. At least the online learning platforms, I think, are putting a little bit of pressure on it. Like, like nowadays, if you want to learn something, you've got a lot more options than you had like even ten years ago, five years ago. So, I think gradually things have to change as the outside world is changing as well. Um, Absolutely. Let's face it. I mean, you know, I don't think you know unless you your desire is to be a 
a doctor or a, you know a, a, a something that requires particular accreditation or something like that engineer I mean you look at most of what's being taught at universities and the benefits people are getting from going to colleges and universities are the social side of things learning you know independent living being on your own for the first time relationships all these kind of things but you know the money has gotten out of whack like the amount of money that's required to do those kind of things is just doesn't justify knowing that like you say we could sit down you could sit down at you you know on this very computer we're talking to each other on what you know we're finished and we could probably each find a lecture from one of the leading experts in the world on just about any topic in the world mm -hmm. and and either for free or for almost nothing and learn from the best Learn from somebody that says, this person is the best person in the world at communicating this knowledge set. And we can all get it, you know, at the tip of our fingertips. I'm not going to keep, I just, I just don't think parents are going to keep tolling out, the, you know, the kind of money that's, you know, that's, that's going on there. Um, I, I say, you know, or an uh, example, um, one of my clients was talking to a friend of her, his came to her and said, I think I'm going to go get my MBA. And he said, well, why, you, why do you want to do that? Because at least over here, that's like a $100,000 investment these days to, go back and get that. Oh, I would like to get a you know, better job. He said, are you crazy? He said, take $10,000 and go hire yourself the best business coach or mentor that you can find. Put the other $90,000 know, in the bank and work with them. Or take $10,000 and source out the best online learning programs in the world that you can find. That will buy you a massive amount of education. You know, and get 100 times more of the, you know, the investment. Three letters do not make uh, you know, a leader. Uh, as my friend JT McCormick said, they don't make us a better person and they're not going to make us any more money anymore. There, there was a time, but it's, 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 it's gone. Well, that's it too. I think there was a time where this thing worked and like the NMA now has become nearly a degree and a PhD will become a master's. It's just kind of, unless we want to think through these things and really think about how this applies to the real world, I want to stay stuck in that paradigm. But um, just before we finish, I just wanted to, to go back to when you were working in Nova Scotia, which is quite rural, what were some of the main limiting beliefs that you choose to ignore or that you saw through that helped you to thrive in a rural area? Because that's what can hold a lot of people back. Yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? It, obviously, the first one was I, that I had to get through, we talked about, which is just coming to the understanding that, hey, I can do this from, from here. Look, there are certain things that are harder. Like, you know, if I do need to travel, I have a three-hour drive to get to the nearest airport that, that can get me anywhere. Um, it, you know, um, it, Telecommunication expenses back in the day were were higher than you know than they are, um, but there are so many incredible advantages to being based in a rural community. I mean, if I had tried to start my business in a city and rented you know space in a you know in a downtown or something like that, I wouldn't have, I would have been bankrupt, man. I would not have made it because mm -hmm. the money we spend. But we can start a business out of our home. I'm talking to you, and you know I have a. Uh, you know, it's called a split level house. So like down this, the, I'd say a basement, but it's like down the side of a hill. So I've got two great big bay windows, all sorts of natural light coming in. I'm looking at forest and everything. And I'm running my business from here. And I'm talking to you in Ireland. I've, been, I've talked to people in Australia this week. And, you know, um, we can absolutely truthfully do, do things. Uh, um, sorry. Um, my apologies. Um, we can absolutely, you know, do things anywhere that we, you know, that we desire. Um, the other thing is, is in terms of when you get to the stage where you hire employees, which, you know, which I, you know, which I did, I mean, in rural communities, employees are incredibly loyal. You give them an alternative job. Like you give them, in my case, I was giving people white collar work, whether you didn't have to go work at a fish plant or in the woods or something like that. And, you know, come in and they could sit at an office desk. They, they were getting 12 months, you know, year round pay instead of a lot of the work in the fishery is tended to be seasonal. Um, you know, I, I paid them really well. 
like, you know, but so by standards of my community, they were doing really well, but I would have been paying way more if I'd been in the city just because of the, the a, the competition form and B what those costs of living, you know, were, um, you know, so there are so many reasons why, uh, being in a rural community. And even what I talked about, I mean, it's factual research about the impact that nature has on our ability to, to reduce stress. Some people absolutely love the city. Some people can actually get that stress relief because they're just, they do love it. I've seen it. You know, they look at the lights and everything. And I love being in cities. I just don't like living in them. But if people have that, that, uh, that belief, that's great. But for so many of us, just being in an environment where we could just step out the door, or in my case, I'm a five-minute drive from a beautiful, long sand beach that, you know, this time of the year with snow, it's a little cold. But, I mean, we'll take our dog, and my wife and I, or I'll go myself and just go for, a, you know, that walk. I mean, things are just so much – for me, it was just so much easier to, um, you know, decompress. And, and the other thing is, is the, the ability to sort of separate your, you know, your, your work from your – your business because in the city what a lot what happened to me was was I got caught up in just hanging out with other people that either worked with me or worked in similar types of you know jobs type of thing I mean just it's just what you did Dennis and but down here like my best friend is a carpenter has been his whole life you know build small homes and stuff like that but you know I mean he would he will always ask me how's how's business now he cared and cares way more than any of the people in Ontario did or in Toronto when they were asking me that question but unlike the people in Toronto, he just wants a one-word answer. <laughs> you know, it's good, it's great, it's bad, it sucks. He really cares about the answer, but he does not want to get into a big, long sob story about everything that's going on. And uh, so, anyway, there, there were just so many things that I've that I've loved. I would never. Um, and my daughter was raised here, and and end the story there. But she went away; like she could not wait to leave. Left the the province to go get her to go to school to to university. Went even further away to get her master's degree was living in St. John's, Newfoundland, which is, you know, has the most Irish pubs in, in, in North America. Uh, a lot of Irish heritage there, but, you know, enjoyed it. But realized, you know, living in, in, the, in a city with the most pubs per square, per square foot in Canada, you know, was okay, but it really wasn't everything she wanted in life. And she actually came back to this very same community um, and faced the same challenge I did 30 years ago. She started her own business four, four or five years ago, and she's now doing you know, you know, quite well. And, you know, when she wants a break, she's a, um, she runs in marathons or half marathons. Well, she can just step out her front door and start running. And, you know, at any time of the day or night, there's never any worries about anything or, I don't know, man. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lifestyle choice, yeah. but, um, but it's possible. And, and you just have to look for the positive things. You know, it's, it's mindset, mindset, mindset. If you, you're going to see what you want to see. If you see your dream, the first six years or so, six, seven years when I got down here, I'd be driving down the road and I, I would still, I could still get chills thinking about it. I'd hit a certain spot on one of the local roads and I would just say to myself, I can't, I can't believe it. I actually did this. I mean, I actually did this. And, I, and I'm serious. I would say that out loud and I would feel it, you know, down, down my backbone. When you get feelings like that, I don't know. How, what price tag do you put on it, man? Exactly. Money is, money is, it doesn't do it. Mm -hmm. I like money. Like money a lot. We need money to do the things we want to do, but there's a lot of ways to make money. So let's make money doing, living in a place where we feel we want to be and doing things that we, you know, that we want to do. Yeah, in alignment, yeah. That's good. That's good. Uh, where can these guys find you, uh, Tim? Yeah, absolutely. The easiest place to hit me up is screwthenaysayers.com. Um, so everything's there. It links to my podcast, my book, and, and the like. I'm... Um, very, very active on, on LinkedIn, uh, which is just Tim Allison. 
um, with, with Allison's with one L there. Um, so I'm in there a lot and I'm I welcome, you know, hearing from people. I post clips of my podcast and of course the, the screw the naysayers podcast, like you and fellow podcasters. So I publish three days a week, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Um, and you can get that on my website or at all of the, the normal places for, uh, for amazing shows like yours and mine. Cool. Great. Thanks for sharing your story today, Tim, and telling us about how you managed to get out of corporate life and uh, start living a life in alignment with yeah. who you are. Dennis, it was my absolute pleasure. Thanks again. So until next time, have fun and enjoy the process. 